Welcome home. You will hear from voices of people you might think you know, listening to these voices that have spent decades behind bars, waiting for their opportunity to come home, will confound your mind. With cameras rolling, we meet them at the intersection of their newfound freedom and a dark past. You'll hear the sound of regret from a soul of someone who has been released from prison and is now fighting to fit back into a society that once forgot they existed. Welcome to Welcome Home. My name is Dominique Perkins and I was born in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a couple of places because my parents didn't move around a lot. So I lived on Normandy and 52nd. I lived in West Covina. I lived a few areas, nothing consistent. I had fun as a child um, until my parents separated when I was seven years old. They never divorced, they just separated. But I had a great child life. I was very close to my dad. I was close to my mom, but a little detached because she worked two jobs. So I never really got to see my mom much. Plus she was a gambler. She liked to play poker. She liked to play blackjack, triple nine, pretty much almost everything slots. So she, if she wasn't working, she was gambling. But my dad, he would always take me with him everywhere he went. My dad would always take me to like the ice cream parlor. He would take me to his neighborhood a lot, especially his neighborhood. The fact that my dad was in the gang, it didn't really bother me because it didn't affect me. It was like a family affair all the time. Everybody was like family. It wasn't like friends. Nobody considered each other friends, it was all family. My name is Elka Perkins, and I was born in Glendale, California. I actually grew up in a pretty good neighborhood. I lived in Eagle Rock, in the hills of Eagle Rock. It was a lot of uh, white people that lived around me, um, some Asians, very quiet, family-oriented, but I really rarely ever stayed home, so it wasn't like we were always around. I grew up in a traditional family home, um, Filipino tradition. The way we were raised was whatever was talked about or whatever happened in the house or whatever happened through our families, we just kept smiling and pretended like nothing happened. So it's pretty much a family unit where you don't say anything, you just smile and you just do whatever your parents say. My relationship with my parents, my dad, I had a pretty good relationship with him. He used to take me all the time to play sports or um, just go out with him. You know, he'd like take me to places to eat. But as far as my relationship with my mother, we always had uh, no relationship. The only time we got along is say if we went to the mall or something. But other than that, as soon as we got back in the car, um, we were back to square one with no relationship. I have very vivid remembrance of my teenage years. My first memories would be from when I was in second grade, telling my parents that the kids were bullying me at school. And basically my parents would be telling me that it's okay to, you know, kids go through that, that's life. Just turn your head, keep doing your studies and it's gonna be okay. And that happened a couple more times and being unheard, I became an angry child and I started fighting back when I thought I was gonna get bullied. So that way I wouldn't get bullied. So as that had started, it built my cycle to where when I was actually heading into my adolescent years, there were incidents in my adolescent years which also made my cycle of violence progress. My cousin, she was molested by a family member. And when I was 14, almost 15, I was raped. So the cycle of violence in trying to protect myself, I became angry and angrier and I took violence to another level. Um, I started carrying a gun. 
I started fighting just when people looked at me kind of weird because I didn't know if they posed a threat or if it was because I was just tripping, you know? So I know in my adolescent years, um, they're pretty rough, uh, pretty violent. I was very isolated. I was very combative. And one day I was hanging out with a couple of my friends and um, we hung out with some gang members. And I think I was about 14 and I ended up joining gang. And from there, that was the first time in my life where I actually felt safe, where I actually felt loved, where I actually felt cared for. And it was an amazing feeling for me. I mean, that's something that every kid wants, just to fit in, to be loved, to be accepted. And from that point, I felt like I was gonna do whatever I had to do to continue to have that acceptance, to have that feeling loved and feeling appreciated. And from there, my violence got even worse. And when I started gangbanging, it was just all or nothing. There was nothing I wouldn't do for the gang because I never wanted to lose that feeling of being accepted and loved. So I had a kind of tough life. Um, the first time I got incarcerated, I was about nine years old. My mom was dating this guy. He was from Grape Street. I remember he's always saying, Grape Street, cuz. But um, he didn't have a job or anything, and she used to take care of him all the time. One day, we were um, at home, and they got into a fight, and she called the cops. She tried to get him removed, but being that the apartment was in his name, we had to move. Um, the officers, you know, told us to get our stuff and get out of the apartment. My mom, she caused, you know, a little ruckus and they arrested my mom. And so I want to go give her, you know, a hug. The officer grabbed my arm, put it behind my, my back, um, slammed me on top of the police car and I got arrested. So when I was in the back of the police car, this is in Hardthon, so they took me like a station in Hardthon, and then the next day they trans they transferred me to um, East Lake Juvenile Hall. I stayed there for a week until they allowed my parents to come pick me up. But that whole experience, it was it was crazy. It was girls in there who were suicidal, constantly cutting on themselves. I always hear stories about what you did, and um, like all through the day, and they would tell me, you're lying, you're not going home, and stuff like that, because you know, a lot of people lack faith incarcerated, so, or hope. So it was like, I was scared to death. You know, I didn't know what was to come. When I was 12 years old, I got into a fight. I was going to lose Inger High. One of the boys, he, um, touched me in a way I didn't like it. So I picked up a chair and I hit him with it and I got locked up again. <laughs> and after that, I did some time because I already had a record. I've been arrested about five, six times. I pretty much did adolescence in juvenile hall. Some of my, um, you know, kid life to adult life in the prison systems. And I believe that it's because of that one incident with the police when they slammed me on top of the uh, police car. So what ultimately led to my incarceration was kind of like progressive. Um, at first I got arrested for assaulting an undercover federal marshal. From there it went to robberies. And then one day, one of my homeboys, little sister, she almost got raped and she was molested by somebody that was supposed to be in our gang. And 
He was supposed to take care of it, but he didn't. And the night when we went out and I saw he didn't take care of it, I felt from everything that happened in my life, the molestation, the rape, I felt like if I took care of this, not only would I become higher in the rank in a gang, I also felt like it would take away the pain for me not being able to protect myself nor my cousin from the same incidents. And so I decided to take his life because I felt that if I did, everything that I had felt about situations like that would go away. And that's what ultimately led to me being incarcerated. It's crazy because that day I wasn't even supposed to be there. After the incident had happened with my homeboy's little sister, we actually sought him out for a whole week. We looked for him, we couldn't find him. And then one day, it was my cousin's birthday, which was supposed to be January 9th. We were supposed to go to the club and hang out for her birthday. And lo and behold, he popped up at my door with one of my homeboys. And I was like, what are you doing here? And because I saw Crystal was the actual victim, I saw her brother in the car and he was, and uh, Manuel was still alive, who was actually the victim. I pulled him to the side. I was like, hey, why is this, why is he standing here? And he was like, you gotta take care of it. I was like, I thought you were gonna take care of it. And he was like, no, you gotta take care of it. I was like, okay. So we acted like he was, he acted like he was gonna drive us to the party. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, he decided he wasn't gonna drive us to the party. So I was like, oh, well, take me back home because I have to go to my cousins anyways. And he refused to take me home. And from there, I kind of basically pumped myself up and I shot him. It was a execution style murder, which gave me the extra enhancements. Got a 15 to life sentence, plus 10 years, plus three years, plus eight years. In total, I did 25 years and eight months off of 15 to life, plus 10, plus three, plus eight. So I got into a fight. One of the persons that was with me while I got into a fight um, snatched this girl's bag. And because he snatched the bag, not only did I get in trouble, I got GBI on a minor because she was 17 at the time. And I was 18. And um, I didn't know that. But if he didn't fess to taking the bag, they would have put it on me because I was the eldest. I probably wouldn't have did it as much time. I only did four months in the county for the fight. They gave me a GBI, great bodily injury. I went to prison for strong arm robbery. What led to that was I got involved with gangs and uh, I got caught up. Really, we were just being thirsty. I was on drugs bad. I was doing e-pills bad, smoking weed bad. And I was going to LA Trade Tech at the time, but. I mean, that was the only thing good going for me that was positive that I was doing, but I was hanging out, doing drugs, walking around um, with guns all the time, feeling like unstoppable and stuff, or, you know, like nobody could touch me or face me when I was with my, my peoples or whatever. And we went out and did something and got caught up. One of my homeboys was like, you know, I'm having a hard time. Uh, my mom, she about to get evicted. I got eight siblings. Can you help me out? I was like, yeah, whatever. Whatever you want to do, just let me know. It's like, shit, I'm, I'm going through stuff too. You know, my grandma's sick. You know, she need um, her meds and everything. She got diabetes, cancer. So, you know, I, I need some money too. So let's, let's do whatever. So we just went out robbing stores. We robbed three places. So we didn't get caught at the scene of the crime. We went back out for gas. 
and when we went out for gas, we fit the description. The police pulled us over. All the victims was in the car, in the squad cars, and they pointed us out. To be honest, I don't think I was gonna get in trouble. I don't think I was gonna get caught because I didn't get caught at the scene of the crime. But I didn't know that my co-defendant was telling from when he got sat in the back of the car. He told the whole time. So as I'm going to trial, I didn't know that he kept telling me on the bus that like, I ain't saying nothing. I'm maintaining, we good. You ain't saying nothing. I'm like, no, I haven't said anything. And when it was time to go to trial, my public defender, one of them, she fired herself and I got a new one and I was asking why. She was like, I don't know why your public defender didn't tell you this, but your co-defendant is telling all the stories and you basically persuaded him to do everything because you were the eldest. And so you were the mastermind of the criminal acts. And I said, that's not true, I don't believe you. I didn't even believe my public defender because I was always told, um, you know, never tell the police anything. Public defender don't tell them nothing, you know? So I was under the assumption that he really didn't say anything and I believed him and come to find out, he told on me for a deal. He got a deal. He got three years and I got 12 with half time. But when you go to prison, even though you're sentenced to something, the prison system can give you a totally different number. You don't necessarily do the time that the judge gives you. My first night in prison was bad. <laughs> I was a juvenile convicted as an adult, so when I actually got to CCWF, which is the California Corrections of Women's Facility up north, um, they segregate you until you turn 18. So I was still 17, so I was segregated, uh, single cell, walk alone, eat alone, talk alone. I would have my own escort, so it was very lonely, it was very, it just was too much time and space in my own head for me to breathe. I just kept crying. I kept asking why, I kept blaming. I kept doing everything like that a person would do that was still in denial that they really committed a crime. In my head, I was like, I did what I was supposed to do because the law wasn't gonna take care of it. But it was the loneliest and one of the hardest nights I've ever had in life. I was never going home because I had a life term. And at that time when I got my life term, there was a 0% of lifers actually going home or the governor even signing any lifers paperwork to go home. My identification number, which is CDCR number, was W64610. I was like, what is this? Because you know, in county jail you have a booking number, but there's no way you can remember that booking number because it's like 20 different numbers. But when you get to prison and they book you, you actually hold this little like a metal thing where it has your number. And they were like, this is what you're always gonna go by. This is your number. This is how you're known in prison. This is how you're identified. And I was like, okay. I was thinking like, wow, we're identified by a number. That's weird. You weren't called your first name. Yes, they called you your last name, but your number was always included in it. So my first two years, I kind of pumped myself up in prison because while I was in county jail, people were saying, hey, you know, you better, um, when you get up there, they're gonna rape you. They're gonna make you their bitch. They're gonna do this, they're gonna do that, X, Y, and Z. So because I have that fear already because I was raped before, I went in there with the idea that I'm not gonna let anybody do that to me again and I'm going to protect myself. So if somebody looked at me wrong, my first two years I was basically fighting 
all the time. After the two years, it kind of slowed down and they're like, don't mess with her, she's a little crazy. You don't even have to say anything to her. If you look at her weird, she's just gonna take off. And it was, it was hard, my first two years was hard. But it seemed like after I got the reputation where like they all thought I was a little crazy, it got a lot easier for me because then there were lifers that were older and they thought I was a baby. They thought, because I was young, a lot of them took me under their wing and prison was started becoming fun. It was like a college campus with guards, you know? <laughs> so in prison, my first night, it was okay. But the next day, it was filthy. I'm not gonna lie, it was filthy, stinking. I hated being locked down, it was horrible. But it wasn't that bad. But the next day when we had like um, an interview of what to look forward to when you're going across the wall. You hear it's these three girls was up in there and they talking about how if you're a lesbian and you're the butch kind, beware because there will be a bigger butch over the wall that's gonna make you they bitch. You're probably gonna get punked for all your canteen and you just need to do your own program, mind your own business. And they was telling uh, stories about girls um, putting hot curlers up girls' uh, vajayjays and getting stabbed on the yard and different stuff like that because I went to Chowchilla. As soon as I left back to the unit, I was in my room doing sit-ups, push-ups, you name it. <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those ones that got played like that. So I just stayed to myself and worked out and I tried to read books and stuff until I got over the wall. But once I got over the wall, it wasn't what she said. She was just trying to scare us. When I got off the bus from being in transit from um, Linwood and they said, what's your name? And I told them who what my name. And they were like, that's not your name. Your number is X35221. And you don't go by your first name here, you go by your last name. So here your name is Perkins X35221. Oh, food, food is horrible. Everything's processed. Everything is carbohydrates, starch, you name it. Anything to make you fat, that's what prison food is. And it's always so bland. And if it's not bland, it's too salty. So the food in the county, uh, not as good as prison food. The food in the county is dry, it's nasty. Sometimes it's spoiled, you don't want to eat it. You know, they give you bologna all day and peanut butter, you don't want that. But when you get to prison, the food is better. Um, you get chicken, you get Salisbury steak, you get macaroni, you get better food. The food is better. It's just a better quality of food. But that's Chowchilla. That's not VSP or CIW. Well, the cells in Chowchilla are squeaky clean. I mean, there's bricks everywhere. The walls are made of bricks. You have one shower, you have one restroom. You have four bunk beds, because it's a eight-man cell. Chowchilla, the rooms, you got women who's using that PIA soap, scrubbing the walls all day, every day. VSP, uh, you might get lucky, you might not. CIW, filthy. So because I was single celled, it was, and it was in 503, which is your um, intake building. Everything is cement and you have basically two metal bunks that are coming out of the wall and it's just a slab. Everything is silver, everything is gray, everything is muted tone. There's no color, no anything. Toilet was stainless steel, sink was stainless steel and it was just one small cubicle. My worst day in prison was when I went to the, I went to shoe. 
I followed this girl who I was messing with up in there. I followed her to shoe. When I first got to that that sale, which is Death Row, so their shoe in Chowchilla is dead. You down there with the Death Row inmates, and um, that room was disgusting. It had a big rat in there. It had a big rat that smelled like puke. It had pee in the corner. They gave you a mattress and they just threw it on the floor because it wasn't a bunk. It was gross. I had to be in that room for a day and I threw up like three times because it was so filthy up in there. I can't say that there was like one specific memory, but one thing that I always remember was a lot of times when you did have a connection with women or if you did have a connection with a set of friends or people that kind of looked after you, it was family orientated. And I've always had a bad narrative of what family orientation is because of how I was raised. So to be around people that I found a new family narrative for, you know, living in prison, it was more comforting to me. It actually made me feel safer, kind of like the gang, how the gang made me feel, you know? Because in my head, how I was raised was when you give gifts to people, that's the way to show them love. So I always wanted to be loved. I always wanted to be liked. I always wanted to feel like I fit in. And I saw how selling drugs, having drugs gave you that power in prison. I mean, if you sold drugs, everybody catered to you. Everybody looked after you. They came and brought you whatever. Like you can say, hey, I want this cop's sunglasses. You know, and they'll be like, well, what are you gonna give me? And you tell them what you're gonna give them and they'll really come back with the cop sunglasses. Like there's no stopping them. And it was just good to feel that much power or that much validation from somebody that you thought cared about you was your friend, but really it was the drug. It had nothing to do with you. In 2010, when my grandparents passed away, it was the most horrible feeling I had ever felt. And so that is when I started using drugs. I used to use crystal meth and I would also pop e-pills. Um, every once in a while, I would probably smoke weed, but that's just not for me. The downer thing doesn't work really good with me. <laughs> I get more paranoid than anything. And I noticed when, even though I started um, using drugs on occasion, I noticed that selling drugs and using drugs doesn't work. Because of course you're using your own product. So I had to start bringing in more drugs into the institution so I could cover my own habit and also still make money. I felt like I really, really got good at it, you know, throughout my almost 26 years. Thank you, Jesus. I never got caught for selling drugs. I've always somehow, some way was able to move it or do whatever I had to do to make sure I wasn't caught with drugs. In, I wanna say maybe 2014, there was a law, it was called SB 260. It was a law for youth offenders. And that was the first time I saw people like myself who stayed in trouble, who always got in trouble, who got write-ups, which are violations of conduct that you get in trouble for in prison. Well, that was one of the first times that I ever saw anybody go home with violate rule violations. And when I saw that and I was like, hey, you came after me. She's like, yeah, they found me suitable. I was like, man, maybe I really can go home. So I didn't stop selling drugs. I didn't stop using drugs. But what I did was I started going to groups 
And one day I ended up getting in trouble. They um, asked me to UA and out of nowhere, I got a dirty UA and I wasn't dirty that day. So I was like, this is, you know, this is the cops doing this. So here I go blaming, shifting blame again, you know? But because I wasn't able to see my family for about six months, because when you get a dirty UA, you can't see them. That was really hard for me because that was my support. They had visited me for all those years. And then when I actually got with Dominique, she was like, you know, you can do better. You don't have to be on drugs. You don't need to use drugs. You can go home. And shoot, that was the first time anybody that I had actually ever been with had even said that they believe I can go home or they believe I could do better. Everybody's like, you need more drugs. You know, you need more of this, you need more of that. But Dominique was the first person that was like, you don't need that, you know, just go to your groups. I'll go do groups with you. So I started doing the groups. And then one day, my using got so bad that she was like, look, it's either me or the drugs, you know? And I was like, okay, I pick you. But then I was still lying to her on the side using drugs because I couldn't leave the drugs alone. And then finally one day I had like this thing where I was laying at work and I had an epiphany or it felt like I was dreaming or something, but I saw myself dead in my cell and it kind of freaked me out a little bit. From there, I really tried to stop using drugs. I finally stopped using drugs probably in 2015. Yeah, I think it was 2015. And I never stopped selling drugs yet, but I did stop using drugs in 2015. I kept selling drugs until about 2017 when I went to board and they rolled me over. Finally, when I went on my last one, um, I got found suitable. So really I stopped selling drugs probably like about a year and a half before I paroled. So you only go in front of the board when they're either considering a date or um, shortening your sentence or um, prolonging your sentence. And I didn't have that. I just had like a determinate sentence. So when I found out that I was getting released, I was shocked because I thought I was going home in um, 2021. So when I found out, I was just like, I didn't even want to leave myself. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to stay in and avoid any conflict or any trouble because people were trying to fight me, you know, because they knew I was going home. People in there, they know when you're going home because your demeanor changed, your routine changed. You know, you switch up your, your mentality, everything changes because you're trying to get to that, that destination. So the first day that I actually found out that I was going home, I was called into the counselor's office to sign some paperwork and she was like, hey, the governor just signed your parole date. And I was, all I could do was cry. I got on my knees, I thanked God, and I still couldn't believe it. I was like, I was in shock. I was like, there's no way I'm really going home. This is, they're playing with me, you know? I still didn't believe it till the day I finally left. I still didn't believe it because I was supposed to parole at nine o'clock in the morning and I didn't get a parole ducat. They didn't call me to r, r so I was stressed out. But when I found out that I got a date and I actually was able to go home, I mean, it, it is the, I can't even, it, most joyous feeling that I could feel. And then two seconds later, I had nothing but fear in me. Cause I was like, oh my God, I'm scared of the free world. I'm scared about these people. Cause being in prison, you're dehumanized, you're desensitized, you're told what you're not, you're told you're a number, you're told what you don't deserve, how you're no good and you're never gonna be anything in life. And this went on for me for almost 26 years. So because these are the types of humans and individuals that I'm around every single day, for me to believe there's something better in society, it was impossible for me to believe that. When 
reality really hit that I was going home, I was in more fear of returning to society than I was of being left in prison. And it was the weirdest split feeling that I've ever had, but I was more overcome with fear and shame and guilt and the unknown. I know what's gonna happen in prison. It's been happening for 25 and so years. The programming, it doesn't stop. The hours don't stop. The, the time change doesn't stop. But now I'm going somewhere where there's no structure. I'm ultimately gonna have to make the decision on what my day is gonna be, what I have to do, where I'm gonna go. And it was overwhelming and it was a frightening feeling. And I mean, I had a lot of anxiety. It was pretty bad. But the day that I got released, everything looked beautiful. Um, everything smelled good, tasted good, felt good. Until reality set in, you know, and I knew I needed to get my shit together. So the process of getting out, they have you going R&R. &R. They search you, they check your stuff, make sure you don't have like kites or letters going out from other um, inmates inside. Cause they don't, they don't let you do that. And I'm just waiting, they're processing me out and I'm just waiting for my family. But as I'm leaving um, to go towards my family to be released, you got the officers talking shit to you, you know, tomorrow, oh, you happy now, but you can get sent back, make a mistake. You'll be back here with me. You know, they torture you like that up in there, but just to see their smiles. I saw my niece's face first, her face lit up. She was like, auntie. And then my dad, he was he was happy to see me and my mom, she was happy and my sister, but it wasn't all peaches and creams. Cause like I said, I, I mean, I didn't say it, you know, um, straightforward, but I came from a dysfunctional family. They were happy for me. They was happy to see me, but they were dysfunctional. It went from happy to, you know, disagreements and arguments. So I was like, you know what? I need to get my shit together. Dominique is my wife. She's my best friend. She's my quiet, you know? I'm kind of like the stormy person. I'm, I'm more outgoing. I, I'm an extrovert and she's an introvert. So she kind of keeps me well-balanced. We were friends for a while. We used to play cards all the time and, um, you know, play dominoes. And then we went through a transfer, which uh, Valley State Prison ended up closing. So they were separating all the women there to go to two different institutions. You were either gonna to go to CCWF, which is across the street from Valley State Prison, or you were going to CIW. I was trying to go to CCWF because that's the that was my initial intake institution before I got kicked out. And I knew people there. And I tried really hard to go with the person that I was with at the time. But thank God, because I try I had been in a real traumatic, I mean, it was it was really abusive. I was in a, in a very abusive relationship prior to Dominique. I, I always wanted to get away, but because she had been down so long, uh, she had a lot of staff that had her back. And so a lot of times when I would try to move or I would try to get off the yard, for some reason, the cop would actually tell her and they would end up not moving me. So it was hard for me to get away from her. So the split was really good. Um, I, had, I was forced to go down to CIW because the institution put a chrono on me and her and somebody else, and she went to CCWF. Dominique ended up showing up at CIW, and we used to hang out all the time and play sports. She plays basketball, I love playing basketball, so that was, we had so many things in common, from softball to basketball to racquetball, it didn't matter, anything sportish, she was in, I was in, and that's how we enjoyed our time, and out of nowhere, like, we really started hanging out with each other and we got together one day, you know? At first it was just supposed to be like a fling or just something to do at the moment. 
But um, after a couple weeks, I ended up falling in love with Dominique. She was somebody different. I'm so used to people who use you, people who uh, don't care about your best interests, but they always care about how they can come up off of you or how you can benefit them. And that's kind of like the laid out law in prison. You know, you get with people who can benefit you. If they can't benefit you, then what's the point of you being with them? So that's the type of individuals that I was used to dealing with. Dominique, she was the opposite, but it was just the, it was just a totally different vibe with her. She was real and she was just really kind-hearted. I always saw her helping the older ladies or helping people that she saw. It didn't matter what they were doing. If they felt like, if she felt like they were struggling, she was there. And I really adored that about her because you don't see that in prison, you know? Normally you see people laughing at people if they can't carry their groceries or if they're taking too long or, you know? I remember when she first came out, she had more of an angry reaction, but I see her growth. I see her spiritual growth. I see everything that goes on with her. And I'm so proud that now she can actually manage her triggers and maintain an, a healthy relationship with her family and healthy relationships with people. So when I came out, um, Dominique was there and so was one of my best friends, Wendy, who I was also incarcerated with. And it was funny because Dominique had been there since earlier, but one of the officers that was working the tower that day, when she went to go give her ID because she was picking me up, he actually kicked her off the prison and said, you're on parole, you just parole from here, you can't be on the property. So I actually didn't have a ride because I didn't have a backup because I was surprising my parents. I didn't tell them when I was coming home, I was just gonna pop up at their house. And so luckily Wendy was working in the area and she was able to contact Wendy and Wendy came on her lunch break and picked me up. So from there we went to the corner store, which is a little uh, Mexican market. I know that corner market because of course I had an illegal cell phone and I had um, people always coming to visit to bring drugs and that's where they would always meet at that little corner store. <laughs> so it's kind of iconic. <laughs> And that's where I saw Dominique and Wendy. And it was just, it was the best feeling. I, I swear I went into that restroom, hurried up and took my clothes off, threw everything in the trash can. I'm pretty sure when I left, they were like, man, this girl, she just, I mean, from my shoes and everything, I didn't even want anything to touch me, but I didn't even want a parole box to come into the institution either. Cause I was like, uh-uh, it's gonna have the prison stank on it. I, I don't even want, I don't want nothing of prison to touch anything that I was moving forward with. So it was it was a great day, you know? And uh, the first thing that we did, we didn't even eat or anything. I had a supervisor that I had worked for while I was incarcerated. He had a, a stroke and a heart attack. We actually went to visit him in a hospice. So that was really the first thing that I did outside of taking all my prison clothes off. <laughs> so Elka is my wife. She's my domestic partner. And we're also um, both co-founders of People's Pottery Project. I met her in, in VSP. She was a play parent of mine. Like if an older uh, lifer or long-termers see you um, and they want to help you in some kind of way or they feel like, you know, they want to take you under their wing, they try to be your parent. So it's like a play parent. So they're, they're, in, the, they're in the role of someone that's like looking out for you or like a mentor or whatever. I was actually with someone else at the time and she was her play parent. So because she was her play parent, she took me in. We ended up, all four of us, cause she had a woman at the time, all four of us ended up moving into a room together and we ended up trauma bonding because they closed VSP. 
which is Valley State Prison for Women, and transferred different people out because they wanted to make um, Valley State Prison for Men. So that's where I met her. I met her at VSP. Um, we got transferred out of VSP. We went to CIW and we trauma bonded. And that trauma bonding um, caused us to grow interest in each other, one another. And we became um, a couple. We sold drugs together. We played sports together. We did groups together. We hung out. Um, majority of my term, I sold drugs. I didn't sell drugs because I wanted to sell drugs. I felt like I sold drugs because I had to sell drugs because my family weren't supportive. It's like a certain culture in prison where if you don't get boxes or you don't get support, people make fun of you or they try to clown you or they try to belittle you. And I didn't want to go through that. So I sold drugs to maintain in prison and to have my prison time go by fast. She went up to the board and they found her suitable and she paroled. She actually paroled two months after I paroled. She got a she got a date. We connected out there. We saw how the relationship was going. We wanted to continue with the relationship. So we became domestic partners. I'm so proud of her. She's like, she's a living testimony. Um, she's very supportive. We've been through trauma and we both have PTSD moments because um, of the trauma we've been through. And you know, prison is a trauma within itself. Any, any day spent in prison is trauma. I tip my hat to her because if you could do 26 years in prison, that's like dancing with the devil in there. Cause it's so much chaos and anger and aggression and it's just not a good place. It's really not. And I don't, I don't think they should, I don't think prison should still be around because if people knew the backstories of prison, they wouldn't want them. They wouldn't want them around. So the hardest part for me would have been um, reintegrating with my family. Like I said, I had, I had been gone for a little over 25 years and my family's life has continued to move forward. They've grown, they've done things together. And although I had their support and, I, and they were there throughout my whole time, as soon as I stepped in a room with them, I felt like a stranger. So the hardest part for me was trying to build the trust back of my family in a healthy way. Um, I, I still fell back into the same trauma of my family. I had issues, I've still had issues. I'm still dealing with trauma when it comes to my family. It's just now I'm a little bit stronger to where I can separate myself from them. I can't manage them as a trigger, then I just remove myself from the situation until I can manage the trigger. Uh, that's been the hardest part for me, is trying to be with my family and not feel the same judgment or not feel the same criticism or not feel the same way that I felt as a kid, because I still feel like that. And they don't trust me, they swear wherever I go, like I'm doing something wrong or I'm gonna go back to prison or, you know, and it's like, damn, you know, you're stunting me because you're not allowing me to move forward. You've moved forward, but yet you've held back this same image and same narrative that you've had of me since I've been incarcerated. Like you can't believe that I could change or you're waiting for that aha moment. Like she's gonna, I know the old Elka's gonna pop up again, you know? And so that's kind of like the hardest thing for me because not, not being able to have your family trust you and believe in you, it's, it's hard. So the hardest part was, okay, so I got a certification when I was in prison and I got a certification for carpentry and laboring. And so my sister asked me if I can remodel her salon. 
and I wouldn't have to worry about rent for a couple of months. And I said, that's fine, I can do that. So I went and I remodeled her shop. Then after I remodeled her shop, she told me that I need to break bread and start paying bills. Mind you, I just remodeled her shop. I just completed remodeling her shop like a week ago. So I'm like, I thought you said I'll be good for a couple of months. I haven't even been out for a month yet. And I already remodeled your shop and you're asking me for money. You know, I ain't got no money. And you know, all I got is this food stamps and this, this GR money and that's all I got. She's like, you need to give me half of that. And I was like, okay, I don't have a problem with that, you know? And then as I got a job a month later, you know, she wanted my whole work check. And I was like, I can't give you my whole work check, you know, and plus I'm still good for a couple of months and you asked for me. She's like, well, that's how it is. If you don't like it, you can get out my house and all this and that. But come to find out it was her boyfriend who didn't want me there. And I was okay with that, you know. I was, but I wasn't, you know, when, you know, when reality set in and then she ended up kicking me out, you know, I was sad because I didn't have nowhere to go. I didn't have nowhere to go for two weeks. So I was homeless for two weeks. And my mom, she lived in Vegas and my dad stayed with my sister, but he didn't really have any authority over there because she was just a bitter person. Today I'm responsible, I'm loving, I am worthy, I, I am, I'm empowering. I have such drive, I have determination, I have passion. Whatever my dreams are, I move forward with them. There's no hesitating, there's no stagnating me. If there's something that I need to do, I'm gonna do it, you know? And that's me today. I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm patient. Most importantly, I will never let Manuel's death be in vain. So whatever I have to, push forward or whoever I have to reach or whatever the spirit guides me to do that day, I'm not gonna ignore that, you know? Cause I'll never forget where I came from or what I did to get to where I was. To be honest, I feel like I'm kind of living my dream and I'm working towards my dream because dreams are hard work. You know, you have to be consistent, devoted, dedicated. You have to have ambition and drive. So um, I'm a co-founder of an organization called People's Pottery Project soon to be the owner of the organization. And I believe I'm living my dream because there were people that believed in uh, rehabilitating, believed in second chances. And I received a second chance because somebody saw something in me and it motivated me to want to do better for myself and my community. And that's what I'm doing. So what we do is we hire formerly incarcerated and we teach them ceramics. We pay them $18 an hour to come and, you know, make ceramics. It's like a lot of formerly incarcerated get turned away or they can't get the jobs that they want to or they're not being paid the wages that they deserve to be paid. You know, cause it's a lot of formerly incarcerated individuals that work really hard. I mean, they, they turn into workaholics because, you know, we have, we have a belief that, you know, people who aren't formerly incarcerated or people that are free know that we're formerly incarcerated. So it kind of causes insecurities within us. I can only speak for myself, but I've seen it. You know, formerly incarcerated people want to work harder or they, they want to give their best because they want you to believe in them. They want you to have faith in them that they can do it. And, you know, they're not a threat to society or, you know, they want to change. I'm just a walking testimony of living my dream, you know, because I'm changing the world. Mm -hmm.